Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Todd, here with Nick. Hello! And Percy. Hello! And we're joined by our contributor, Romana Isabella. Bonjour! (laughs) (laughs) Today we want to talk about the history of queer theater traditions and how that intersects and overlaps with the development of queer gaming, and then how those things relate to thirsty sword lesbians, so... Buckle up, kids. We're in for a ride. <laughs> buckle, buckle up, indeed. So when we were thinking about this episode uh, and trying to figure out kind of how we wanted to approach it, we realized that there's a couple of different ways that we could think about this, and we wanted to touch on kind of three different topics. So one of the ways to think about queer art that we wanted to bring up is sort of what what we've written down as queering a straight thing, um, which is looking at art that is maybe not intentionally made for queer for or by queer people, or maybe we don't know that it was made that way because, for example, it was written a long time ago and applying a queer lens or queer reading to it. So that's kind of lens number one that we're taking. Then there's queer representation or the kind of identity-based understanding of queer art where we're looking at generally queer artists who are making something that represents queer people through the characters, etc., but in a form that we might recognize um, or that's kind of within the bounds of conventional storytelling. And then the last, and I'll be honest, like kind that's kind of sort of most exciting for me personally, uh, lens is to ask what it means to be kind of formally queer, to explode the boundaries or the forms that we know in particular media and storytelling shapes, uh, to push back against those structures and traditions of storytelling itself. So we're going to run through those three lenses and then talk about where we feel thirsty sword lesbians fits into all of that. And we're going to start with queering a straight thing, or maybe a not straight thing. I don't know. Percy. Uh, So a framework that I think is useful in understanding the ways in which we might queer a straight thing comes from a book by Carolyn Dinshaw called Getting Medieval Sexualities and Communities Pre and Postmodern. Um, She writes a lot about like sodomy laws and the Lollards and like things like that. Um, But she's sort of figuring out how we can reconcile the erasure of queerness from history with the way that contemporary queer artists resonate with certain plays and characters because of the simple fact that like I can't look at history and objectively say like this person was queer this person is queer that person is trans whatever because a queerness and transness meant different things then than they do now um and also like I don't there is no way to get the conclusive evidence for that thing in most cases particularly if you go back to like the medieval era that Dinshaw's talking about. Um, So she thinks a lot about like queer as a relation to a norm, like queerness, not as like the people that you're attracted to or the people that you sleep with, but rather queer as like not fitting in living in a way that sort of is unconventional or outside the sort of realm of what is considered quote unquote normal. Um, And she talks a lot about what she calls affective relations across time. So basically she's thinking about how do we as queer people in the present look at something that happened in history or look at say a character in a historical play. um, And what do we feel in relation to that? Do we feel like a kinship with that? Uh, Does this character, is this character sort of like othered from society in a way that feels resonant to our experience as contemporary queer people? And what bond does that form? And how do we create communities with each other in the present based on like, what that feeling is. Um, So she's sort of thinking a lot about like how we make contact with history, how we make contact with stories, 
and what that means, as opposed to sort of saying like, oh, Virginia Woolf wrote these very romantic letters to Vita Sackville West. So obviously they were lesbians when in reality, like you might not be able to say that conclusively, like it's more nebulous than that. And we should actually just like embrace that nebulousness. Um, So she's sort of saying like, the fact that we can't determine for sure that sort of indeterminacy of queerness in history is actually what makes our ability to connect to it possible because we can't say for sure that it's not and we can't say for sure that it is. So actually, let's just focus on like how we feel in relation to that thing and what resonates for us with that thing um, and embrace that. Uh, And a way that this sort of manifests um, is in this play Galatea by John Lilly uh, that was written in, um, it was originally published in 1588. It's an early modern Elizabethan court play. The like short synopsis of it, leaving out a lot of other things that are irrelevant to my point, um, is that there's this village where they have to sacrifice the fairest virgin in the village to Neptune every five years, or a sea monster will attack the village and kill everybody. These two fathers disguise their daughters, Philida and Galatea, as young boys in order to save them from being chosen as this year's sacrifice. The two girls go out into the woods and they're dressed up as boys and they meet each other and fall in love with each other. And throughout, they're kind of like, I'm not sure that this person is actually a boy, um, but I can't, you know, how like I have to hide that I'm also not a boy. And it's very, uh, very fraught and very steamy. Um, And then eventually they decide they come out of the woods and they're like, oh, my God, we're both not boys. We're both girls, but also we want to marry each other. We love each other very much. Um, the goddess Venus is, uh, she says, I like well and allow it. And then she offers to turn one of them into a man so that they can get married. But we never actually see this happen on stage. And it's very much this, like, we don't know exactly what's going on. Like there are all these moments of like implied intimacy or implied cosmic sex change that we don't actually see realized. Um, you could read this plot in like a really heteronormative way of like, oh, Venus offers to turn one of them into a man, which reinforces you know, that only men and women can get married or whatever. Um, But there are a lot of contemporary queer and trans artists that read this as a story about lesbians or a story about trans masculinity uh, in a way that feels really like resonant and not heteronormative. Um, MJ Kaufman wrote an adaptation that is explicitly queer and trans that is actually like going up in Brooklyn next week. Um, Although by the time this comes out, uh, it will have already happened. Um, there's an artist in England named Emma Franklin, who's a trans woman who's been working with this play for a really long time, explicitly through the lens of like gender fluidity and the queerness in the text. So I think this is a good example of sort of a a straight quote unquote play, um, that you can read a lot of queerness into that resonates with people's queerness. And you can't like, you know, like I don't, I haven't met John Lilly. I can't say for sure if he like, maybe he was a trans woman who knows, um, you know, we just don't, we just don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think gender is so interesting in that particular time period because you see it so much, particularly on like the English Renaissance. Well, and like not to, be, not to be a giant nerd about it, but the thing that's like fascinating about this play is that in the context of like early modern theatrical production, it was young boys dressing as young girls, dressing as young boys, declaring their love for each other, which is like so many, so layered, so fascinating. And it's often young female characters who are played by men playing boy, Mm -hmm. like pretending to be boys and rarely like young male characters cross-dressing as women. So I also think that there's like something specific there. Some things about like safety and gender, um, which is what's happening in Galtea. Um, But also some things about like the, the real lived experiences of the performers and this like doubling of, cross-dressing 
Yeah, I, it also, uh, what that makes me think a lot about is Morgan M. Page's uh, podcast, One from the Vaults, where yes. regularly Morgan is discussing periods and stories and gossip from a queer perspective as a trans woman looking at history and having a very knowledgeable understanding of history, but also having that academic distance of being like, I cannot define this person as a trans woman, as a trans man. Like, I cannot define this person by these definitions that we in our modern society have that just simply didn't exist at that time. And so I think even that experience of lacking definition is queering history in and of itself and is kind of like a time traveling portal for queer people in general. Because once you meet a historical figure where they're like, we're not totally sure what's happening here, you have this very exciting queer experience of like, ah, they could be. It's like, it's the same reason why so many people are super into Alexander the Great. It's like, we don't know how gay he was. And it, like, it's, it's just this, it's this, that experience of mystery and nebulousness adds both to the aesthetic of history, as well as to the queerness of mystery in and of itself. Um, I just have a question because I haven't read Galatea. When Venus shows up, does she pick one of them to swap genders for? Or like, are they both cool with the idea of maybe becoming men in order to marry this other person? Um, To my memory, it's been a minute since I reread the play. I th I think one of them, I think one of them volunteers, but like there's a, there's the vibe that like they would both be equally cool with this. And they're both sort of like, Interesting. um, Cause they both think a lot, like all of their, a lot of their dialogue is sort of thinking about like, oh, this person doesn't feel like a man in the sense that I understand men, but maybe this is just enough, like maybe this is just what masculinity could be, which is mm. like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, which is like a whole other thing in and of itself. But yeah, like it's, it's this bizarrely queer feeling play which when you compare it to other early modern plays that have cross-dressing in them, like it feels so different. Mm -hmm. um, like it feels very different from like Twelfth Night or As You Like It. Um, yeah. But Twelfth Night, a lot of bisexual vibes there too. Very fun. <laughs> Antonio's so gay. Well, and also the Duke. Like yeah. the Duke being like very cool with like, oh, I'm kind of crushing on this dude who's in my service now. Oh, he's a lady. That's cool. But maybe wear some dude clothes from time to time. And there's like, if Twelfth Night were written today, Duke Orsino would have like a homosexual panic scene yeah. where he's like, oh, my God, am I gay? What's going on here? And instead, he's just like, I don't know. Cesario kind of does it for me. Uh, <laughs> and like, I don't know why, but that's fine. It doesn't need to be defined or explained, which like is an interesting element of that mystery, because when you do look at those kinds of queer uh, elements in different plays, like you have the work of like Rosuiza or you look at William Shakespeare, like you look at all these different plays that have cross-dressing and gay uh, interaction without gay panic. It really brings up the question like, okay, 
how much of this was just elements of what was then contemporary society that we now add layers of morality and ethics that didn't necessarily exist historically. Jumping off of Romana's uh, earlier point about like historical figures that we can't quite deem one way or another with regards to their queerness, um, a very popular author, uh, Oscar Wilde, um, who like had a wife and kids and also like had many romantic and sexual relationships with men, but like we can't really call him gay. And like also bisexual wasn't a term that we were using at the time. And like, who knows if that's how he'd define it if he had that language. Anyway, um, a little primer for people, although Wilde is taught often in high schools in this country and I'm sure others. Um, Wilde's works are very well known, often to non-theater people, whether it's his plays, The Importance of Being Earnest, A Woman of No Importance, uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, or his novel, like The Picture of Dorian Gray. Um, he was an Irish aesthete um, in Victorian London who lived, as many me men of means seemed to in his times, married, but often engaging in sexual and romantic partnerships with other men, um, often other like high class men, but sometimes uh, there was interclass mingling that had some like weird class dynamics. Um, but most notably, his lover, Bosey. When Bosey's father, the Marquess of Queensbury, suspected something, he publicly called Wilde a sick somdomite. Um, and that sick is thus, not S-I-C-K. This is an audio medium. But here we are. Um, so he called him a somdomite. Uh, Wilde tried to sue for libel. Um, he couldn't win that suit. Um, and because he couldn't win that suit, because there wasn't like a definite clear-cut case that Wilde wasn't a sodomite, um, the Crown was forced to prosecute Wilde um, and sue to like make sure he wasn't involved in gross indecency, a phrase which here means homosexual behavior. Um, and they used his writings against him, which is like a really interesting thing. It wasn't just like his own actions, although that did come up and they like put a bunch of male prostitutes on the stand and a bunch of other things. But his art, uh, whether that is the importance of being earnest or very specifically, there's a lot of language in the portrait of Dorian Gray that gets used in his trial against him. For those who don't know, The Portrait of Dorian Gray is a novel that follows a dandy named Dorian who has his favorite book rebound in every color so it can always match his outfit, which honestly like life goals. Or Pinterest goals. Pinterest goals, yes. Uh, Dorian sits for a portrait by a painter named Basil. Um, who seems to have feelings for Dorian. When the portrait is completed, Dorian fears that he will never look this beautiful again. He will only age from here and like, uh, you know, he'll have wrinkles, he'll die eventually, blah, blah, blah. And so he makes this wish that instead of him aging, the portrait could age in his place. And there's no explanation for this. There's no like weird whatever that happens that makes this wish come true. There's no, you know, carnival fortune teller a la big, nothing. It just becomes true. Um, and as Dorian like realizes that he has this infinite lease on life, um, he becomes very debaucherous. He's like, awful to a number of women. Um, he does a lot of hard drugs. Uh, he just like parties all the time. And the 
painting decays, but he does not. And the painting comes to like reflect his inner character. Um, upon learning the horrible truth about the painting, Dorian realizes he needs to kill Basil in order to keep his secret safe. And then he like hides the portrait somewhere and it just gets worse and worse and worse, but eventually racked with guilt, Dorian destroys the painting and with it dies. Um, and this is also like a period of time in queer storytelling where the queer person must also end badly in order to get like published. Um, like you can have queer characters who are doing these like very foppish or very gay or like even engaging in, he doesn't quite get to sodomy in the book, but like they get close um, in certain <laughs> moments. Um, they can do all of those things so long as they like die, destitute, uh, something horrible happens to them, etc. And there's like a comeuppance for their wicked, wicked ways. Um, otherwise, you couldn't get it published. And again, this text specifically gets used against Wilde in court with regards to like Basil's affections for Dorian um, and how much he loves his, uh, you know, boyish looks and so forth. Flipping in a different direction, um, the importance of Ernest, while a well-made play and arguably fully about straight characters, like there aren't gay characters in it um, technically. There's a lot of camp. Um, there's a lot of artifice in what's happening in the play. Um, it features two foppish men who both reveal that they partake in the delights of quote unquote bunburying, um, wherein each has made up a fictional friend or cousin who is either ill or wicked. And uh, this other person who is fake, like forces the good person to like go to the country or the city, uh, depending on which person we're talking about, um, so that they can get away from their family life and obligations for a bit. Um, the whole thing uh, has this very like queer feeling to it with these men leading double lives to satisfy both appearances and their romantic inclinations. Um, most productions today lean into the knowledge that Wilde was in some way, shape or form queer, although we can't like define it with a specific label. Um, and yeah. Well, the, the fun fact that I was going to bring up is the very fact that like being earnest, as a point of slang during that period of time essentially meant being gay. So when a man would call another man earnest, it would be a kind of underground way of saying that he was gay. And so even the very title of the importance of being earnest, as well as the fact that the friend in both situations for both foppish men was named Ernest. It's really interesting to like see a direct correlation with like naming the thing in a way that is subversive and underground while also being completely overt at the same time. And it being like being Ernest, being the character, quote unquote, the friend Ernest in these situations was also the excuse to go do the things the men already wanted to do. And so it's like this very, like we now in the 21st century can look back on it and see all of these like completely obvious like notes once we have this context. But it's also very interesting to see how much this was 
a play about pushing boundaries and quite firmly putting your tongue in your cheek and seeing where those lines kind of blur and intersect societally. So in terms of how to apply a kind of queer reading to something that may not be explicitly queer, you know, one thing that we've seen a lot in tabletop gaming culture, since we've been talking about theater for a little bit, is fifth edition D&D, which is pretty much the straightest thing you can play in tabletop games. Maybe not. Maybe Warhammer 40K. That's probably (laughs) straighter. Um, But, you know, but uh, is not fifth edition D&D, even though the fifth edition of the game made a little bit more room uh, in the player's handbook. There was a little, I think, sidebar that was like, your character can be whatever gender you feel like. It doesn't have to be binary. Your sexual orientation can be whatever you feel like. We don't make rules. We only sell them. And then, uh, and and so that is a very good thing, but it's not built into the game in the way that it is for things like Thirsty Sword Lesbians, for example. But there have always been queer players in Dungeons and Dragons, obviously. Um, And with the popularity of Critical Role, Dimension 20, Stranger Things, the COVID-19 pandemic, forcing us all to only do indoor things that can be done over the internet, um, there has been this huge explosion over the past, I would say, like 10 years of D&D players uh, that have really created a much wider variety of kind of public ways of being with tabletop games, but also D&D specifically, the brand, than there were before. When I got into D&D, it was not a law that all tieflings were queer and also purple. And thanks to Critical Role, now it is. <laughs> and also bards. And also, and also bards. bards, yes. <laughs> I the So I went to a conference recently where somebody did a presentation about transphobia in D&D. And the point, one of the points that they made, the scholar is um, P.S. Berg, and I can link their Twitter in the show notes. Um, but they did this really great talk and they were like, yeah, fifth edition D&D sure does say you can be whatever gender you want, but mechanically that doesn't mean anything. And like, I think the limitation that we can find in the sort of queering a straight thing is really evident here, which is that like, it doesn't really feel like queer representation if being queer or being trans in the game doesn't actually, you just are and it doesn't affect anything. It doesn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what so so there's a couple of things, you know, Dicebreaker ran an article by Isabel Lichtenstein about a year ago um, about queer players finding a safe space in Dungeons and Dragons. uh, And other people have written about that, too. I was reading an article by Angela um, about the incident, what, what Angela calls the incidental queerness of Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, there is something that I think people find appealing in the kind of found family trope that is a lot of adventuring parties, right, is like people who don't have necessarily ties to the community that they came from. Um, And this is something I may have quoted her before, but there's a game designer, Crystal Frazier, who said once, you know, in any remotely medieval adjacent fantasy world, the people who are going to be adventurers are mostly going to be queer people or or otherwise minoritized people somehow because those are people who leave the homes that they were born in and like sever themselves not not to say that the, these people necessarily do that but like who are the people who are traveling without immediate ties to anyone except the group of people that they are traveling with and i think there's a lot of ways to push back on that but i found that 
an in, it, it helped me understand why people find the like adventuring party trope so fruitful I guess, for this kind of exploration. I guess my hesitation. Has a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Sorry, I do have a lot of things to say about this. Actually, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, go for it. I my hesitation is that like I think a lot of the things that people will say in articles like that about queerness in D anD D are not things that are inherent to D anD D, but in fact are just true about the act of role playing a role playing game, and it happens that D anD D is the role playing game that they're playing. Um, like I think if you look at any like almost any actual play of any game ends up feeling like a found family sort of vibe because that's inherent to the structure of many games, but it's not explicit to D and D. And I personally really struggle with like people who are like D and D so queer when like, for example, they republished a bunch of dungeons from advanced dungeons and dragons in a book called tales from the yawning portal. Um, and if you look uh, despite the fact that they were like, oh, it's updated and like blah, blah, blah. Um, there are sex change curses in many of the dungeons where if you go through this archway, it changes your biological sex, which is like so much of Dungeons and Dragons is really bioessentialist in a lot of different ways. And it's like, um, you know, like like there are a lot of things that are still really harmful to queer and trans people along with people of color, like still in Dungeons and Dragons. And sure, they are they are working on it. But like, I think a lot. Of, yeah, I think a lot of the there's a lot of space that queer players can carve out. But I wouldn't say that D&D is like a queer game. Although I don't think anybody was arguing that. No, I think it's really interesting. My foray into role-playing as a medium was actually, and this is probably going to be the gayest thing that I've said in my entire life, was on the Neopets message boards. Same. Like I... Like, I went into the role-playing message boards on Neopets, and that was, like, my first foray into... It was it was essentially TTRPG without dice. It was, like, engaging with a huge community of players that were all interacting with each other and creating this, like, wish-fulfillment situation. And I think that something that... Uh, I think a lot of queer people gravitate to when it comes to TTRPG is that youthful desire to have that wish fulfillment of safety in expression. And it is like in a similar way that we were talking about with Oscar Wilde, this exploration of boundaries, that role of taking on who you would one day wish or hoped to be and see how those behaviors would be like response, like the response that others would give you with regards to those actions. It is, it is, it is playing the role in order to see the real life response. And I think that in a similar way that Percy was saying that like Dungeons and Dragons is not inherently queer. It is just a mechanism that very easily lends itself to queering storytelling because the very act of role-playing as a mechanic lends itself to queer narratives overall. Yeah. And I think the challenge of it is, as Percy articulated well, like it's a giant corporate product, you know, and, and as, and as Percy said, it, it doesn't, D&D the game, your own listeners, your own game of D&D may be different, but D&D the game doesn't care about your gender. 
And on the one hand, like it doesn't care about your gender, but on the other hand, it also doesn't care about your gender. Uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't care about anything except your ability to murder uh, creatures to get gold, pretty much. Um, and that's and that does sometimes lead us into sticky situations when people try to expand that. Because, for example, this content creator Oliver Darkshire made this uh, supplement for D anD D on the Dungeon Masters Guild called Queer Coded. Which was very controversial because what he did was basically create, quote unquote, queer versions of lots of classic D&D villains. I see a beholder here. I see. You mean the brunch that... holder <laughs> whose eye stalks are holding mimosas? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's the illustrations are quite something, I will say. Um, but, you know, but this was, I think to some extent, rightly, that's not really my place to judge, but maybe I'll say understandably controversial, because I think from the creator's perspective, it was like, ah, yes, I have created these like queer spins on uh, classic D&D characters and everybody else was kind of and their villains. We're going to have a whole episode about kind of queer villainy later. And this will certainly this supplement will certainly come up. <laughs> this supplement will come up. But to give the brief version of it now, a lot of other people were like, you have just created a book of explicitly queer beings for adventuring parties to murder. Like that's like that's what you did. Um so it's it is a tricky line to walk and a tricky uh square to circle, I think, to position fifth edition D&D as an entity as quote queer or as somehow representative of queerness. I also think there's something really hard. Um, like when the Oliver Darkshire thing happened, I think there's something hard when there isn't a lot of explicit representation around things that like um, minoritized communities want those few representations that we have to be good um, and I know that, like, um, there, so there's a lesbian playwright um, here in Maine, Carolyn Gage, um, who uh, writes a lot of lesbian plays and very sapphic plays and characters. Um, and she has had pushback because not all of her lesbians are good people. Um, and, like, her feeling is, like, we should be allowed to have, like, messy and or bad lesbians. Uh, like we should be allowed to tell stories that are like that, but there's a lot of people and especially people in the queer community who like push back against that because like any negative press is like bad still, you know? Um, and I think that there is, and I don't want to say that like what Oliver Darkshire has done here is like a cool, great thing, whatever. And again, we'll talk about this more, but I think there's also this like pushback of like anything that casts us in a negative light in any way is also really, really bad. There's a book about this by Heather Love called Feeling Backwards. And it's uh, it's a queer historiography book that is that is about this very thing, which is basically like if you are queer activism, because she, she writes about, for example, um, this book, The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall, which was like a, a lesbian book that's very sad. Yeah, and, and it was very, very huge. It was a big fucking deal. It was one of the first like lesbian quote unquote novels that was like, and she got a lot of like pushback for it. And, and basically in, in the book, Heather Love is, is basically saying like, you can't just leave the people who make you sad in the past or you can't just leave. Like if, if your queer activism is only inclusive of the people that you can use to assimilate 
into straight society or the people who are palatable to straight people, then actually that's not queer activism. And like, you need to reevaluate why you're doing what you're doing. So I think, I think you make a good point, Todd, that like, you know, yeah, at at a certain point, if you're only making representation that is palatable to straight people, understandable by straight people, or, um, allows queer people to assimilate into a society that does not want them, then like, that's not, that's also not good. And yeah, we, we deserve to have messy lesbians. Um. (laughs) Well, and like, um, this is something that comes up around, like, I think an easier touchstone for straight people, I'm going to do this for the straight people here, is like disgraced by Ayad Akhtar. Um, Like disgraced is like a beautiful and hard play. And also I would not want to be like, if I were a Middle Eastern man, I would not want to be the only representation of me in American theater and like kind of is right now. Um, And I think the problem is not the play, but rather the cultural and like societal place that we're in that he is the only touchstone that we have. Like if Willie Loman were the only idea of like white masculinity in America, people would hate that because he sucks. (laughs) Willie Loman fucking sucks. He blows. Um, But he has the benefit of being among such like a large pantheon of different figures that no one looks to Willie Loman and says, that's what all white men are like. Um, Like (laughs) they don't have the option to do that. And if they did, we would be mad about it. But like, I am hoping that both for like queer characters and people of like all different sorts of minoritized individuals that like, we all get to have Willie Lomans someday and that they are like, footnotes that they are not the only touchstone that they are like parts of identities that we can like understand and parse and not like the there's just this one shitty guy you know (laughs) can Uh, i just say that andrew tate is the willie loman of the 2020 that's exactly correct (laughs) (laughs) but but now we'll, we'll pivot um into the, into our sort of second uh, manifestation of queerness, which is thinking about queer representation and this sort of identity based way that queerness can manifest. We were talking about plays before we started recording where we were like, what what is a play that feels like it is not doing a lot of kind of like formal queering of the theater? Um, and one piece that I do not know very well, but kind of came to my mind about uh, that does that is The Boys in the Band by Mark Crowley which was recently made into a film um, and is bro. I think you, you said uh, something like it's, it, it's a bunch of people in a room with a secret, which is like the straightest or most classic, like setup yeah, for think, a well-made yeah. play. Like, yeah, I very much think that like plays very much like uh, boys in the band fulfill the, what I consider the straightest thing in the American theater which is a collection of people in a room with a secret. Like that to me is the, even if the secret is the gayest thing in the world, that format is inherently the straightest thing in the world. Because what I, my relationship to that format is, it is the equivalent of your aunt at a family gathering looking at you and telling you like a piece of gossip that you've known for the last like two years. 
it's it's very much that that straight act of did you know that blah 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 is gay and as a gay person you're like of course blah 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 is gay it's like it is it is that experience of everyone knew except for you and boys in the band is the queer version of that trope and the thing is like i do not particularly know boys in the band very well but it's also just something that every single gay theater goer knows is a play that exists and is repeatedly redone i think the netflix film is maybe like the fourth or fifth revival of the play in the last 50 years when was it when was it written the original play is it looks like 1968 it was turned into a movie at least once before i think yes it was a movie once before and then it was a revival on broadway i think two times and then it was another movie but here we are. This is a collection of four incredibly theater literate individuals. And we do not have a good understanding of what the boys in the band even is about. We just know it's gay and we know it's straight. <laughs> I'm like gay for straight people. Uh, <laughs> well, but, well, you know, like, it is. But, but that's kind yeah, of yeah, what this, yeah. that's kind of what this theme is like queer as identity only is queerness for straight people it is queer it is diet queer it is yeah it is I don't no ha- kink at pride queer- yeah like i there's no kink at pride i don't have queer every night but i'm okay with it every once in a while like jingle all the way it is it is a hundred percent diet queer and the reality, like another example of it personally is the normal heart to me. The normal yes. heart to me, which I know a lot more about, is what would be considered dramaturgically as a melodrama. It is a melodrama about the AIDS epidemic. And a melodrama is was originally a queer, like a queer form, because the very idea that like it was a queer form in the sense that it highlighted women's feelings but it was also very straight in that it said women's feelings are drama and in a similar way the normal heart takes that philosophy and they apply it to something incredibly serious but also in a strange way diminish the impact of it because of associating it with the melodramatic trope and the melodramatic genre as a whole. And what that, and and the reason why is because it is very much a play with a philosophy that its audience is not the people that it's representing. And I think that that is the best way that I can define queerness as identity as like an entire philosophy that we're talking about here. And we were talking about this earlier, but I think that Jeremy O'Harris and slave play is kind of like a really interesting modern parallel to that. 
Ashley Ray did this huge Twitter thread where she essentially analyzed slave play in an incredibly like intelligent and insightful way. And my favorite thing that she brought up was the fact that in slave play, there is one moment where you realize that the entire back wall of the play is a mirror. And she sat there as a black woman looking at this mirror. And that was the moment that she realized this play isn't about me. This play is representing my care. Like it's supposed to represent me, but it's not for me. And I think in a similar way, queerness as identity as the centerpiece of a play is inherently that experience. It is, this is a play about queer people, but it's not for queer people. It is explaining queer people to straight people. Mm-hmm. Well, and the the moments when, like in that play in particular, when the mirrors are highlighted are particularly mm-hmm. when the main character is talking about like the spirits of all these white slave owners, like looking mm-hmm. over her and watching her and like you as the audience are implicated in that, but it presumes and often rightly it presumes for it's like Broadway and LA audiences that they will be primarily white audiences. Um, and that is like key for the play to do what it's doing. But as you said, becomes like about queerness and about um, interracial relationships for white people. I think another good example shifting into gaming of this sort of queer for straight or just like focusing on identity over structure and like thinking about content over structure is empowered by the apocalypse games, which you can sort of start with apocalypse world and then extrapolate out. Um, but Todd, you would have thought about sort of the origin point of where this might come from. Yeah. So in here, we're, we want to talk a bit about how like uh, part by the apocalypse and apocalypse world games um, view like gender and gender expression as part of your character on your character sheet, which is neat. Um, and I feel like this has very clear roots in apocalypse world's look section, um, which although when we talked about apocalypse world, we agreed that this gets a lot of things kind of weird and wrong. Um, because your options are uh, man, woman, ambiguous, transgressing, very fun, um, and concealed. But your your look can only be concealed if you're certain playbooks, which is weird. Like certain people, you can't know their gender, but other people, you must. Um, <laughs> which is just like <laughs> a weird even vibe. If the gender you know is ambiguous or transgressing. You you will know that. Uh-huh. Yeah, trust the gender you know. <laughs> Um, did you leave a gender un, unsupervised at the airport? Um, anyway, uh, if you see something, we say something. We have a lost gender. <laughs> and like, I, I don't think this gets a lot of things right. I think it gets many things wrong. But it is a step that pushes us towards stuff like masks and so on. And I'll turn this over to you, Percy. Yeah, so... Um... Part of my thinking about this is spurred by an article by Maria Fanning called Powered by the Apocalypse, How a Rule System Nurtured a Queer Fan Base. And I think it is correct that like there are so many gay people who love Powered by the Apocalypse games. But something that I struggle with a little bit is that part of what people use to classify PBTA games as queer um, is that, for example, there's like a space for pronouns built into the character sheet. 
um, you see gender articulated as it is an apocalypse world, less in terms of like a bioessentialist sort of like inherent gender and more in terms of like how you express your gender or how you present, like what your look is. So it's there's a lot of talk about like what your identity is and what your character's identity is and how that matters to the game, which is a step up from D&D where it doesn't matter at all. But also like I that's very identity focused. It's not really it's paying attention to something that hasn't been paid attention to before. I'm not quite sure how much further it goes. And this article makes sort of an argument that like PBTA, because it's sort of rules light, uh, there's no sort of difficult what uh, the author calls difficulty gatekeeping or like making one's ability to pick up and play the game really, really difficult. Like it can be for Dungeons and Dragons because you have to learn all these rules and you have to fill out this complicated character sheet, et cetera, et cetera. Like PBTA frames it, their games, not as like the DM as God King, but rather as like everything is shared between the GM and the players, which you could argue is like sort of a queer structure or queerer structure. And then the, you know, you're embodying a character whose identity is related to this sort of emotional conflict or this way of being in the world as opposed to a D&D class, which is like, what is your job? No jobs at Pride. No gay <laughs> no person should be Pride. required to work. Although some, I, I mean, it's, I think we've touched on this before in the podcast, but it is also, you know, some powered by the apocalypse games. And certainly when you look at the whole, like th there's this interesting thing that people in the powered by the apocalypse fan base do where they don't, where they're almost never actually talking about the whole range of things that is powered by the apocalypse because it's like powered by the apocalypse is also, you know, includes dungeon world. Yeah. Which is, you know, the author of which D &D. assaulted someone on stream. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And more fundamentally is also just like not particularly. Try inter I don't I, I, I haven't looked closely at it, but I also think doesn't even interest itself in these same things that we say PBTA games, quote unquote, do. But it's a much larger umbrella that people tend to mentally whittle down to like Apocalypse World and masks and monster hearts and like the the kind of like, for lack of a better word, good <laughs> PBTA games that people find exciting for these reasons. Um, a question that I have about this is, is that I think part of it is because and we talked about this on in season one on our Indie Luhu episode where we also talked about the flea. Um, but. I think this might be related to um, the way that PBTA games are positioned by their fan base as countercultural. Yeah, I don't have necessarily a conclusion about that, but that's something that I want to toss in is that I wonder to what extent this sort of inclusive mindset that people praise the games for is in part because like within TTRPG culture, they are sort of framed as these like very sort of indie countercultural games. Uh, what I find really interesting mechanically and the assumption that a lot of queer integration in a TTRPG does is that it either assumes that the experience of sexuality and gender is completely outside of the dynamics of the external world. So when we look at something like Dungeons and Dragons and you have all of these different stats, like for example, uh, charisma and wisdom, those are two things that me as a queer individual, if I'm looking at like my stats in the world, my queerness feels like something that would affect those stats inherently. And Dungeons and Dragons comes from the assumption, uh, assumptive position that your gender and sexuality does not affect your stats. You can be whatever gender and whatever sexuality you want because gays 
get plus two to charisma and we don't want to give them that advantage. But the reality uh, that you then go into with Powered by the Apocalypse games is um, the experience of gender and sexuality is not so much an outside in, but an inside out in the sense that the way that you express your gender affects the way that people treat you, not because systems exist inside the world that associate a moral and therefore numerical value to your experience of the world, but instead how you present yourself, whether you are transgressive or uh, you, uh, what was the wording that they described it? Concealed. Uh, or concealed. That is your, that is an out, that is an inside out interpretation. And what that really makes me think about is there was a period of time where homosexuality was in the DCM. It was a mental illness. And the logic was that being gay is an inherently mentally ill state. And one of the main uh, shifts in perception was when the DCM changed that instead to uh, homophobia-associated depression. It instead understood that a state of depression can exist because you are living within the context of homophobia. And I'm really, what I'm looking for in my TTRPG is a system that understands that your sexuality and your gender affects the way that you interact with the world, not because your presentation inherently affects other people, but because we all live in systems where gender and sexuality affects the way that others interact with us. And I would like to see mechanics that reflect that. I would say flipping it back in a different way and maybe on a lighter note, masks and monster hearts are both gay because teenage superheroes are inherently queer. Uh, one and two, I mean, you're living a double life. There's a lot of stuff, the X-Men, whatever. Um, and then monster hearts is queer because, you know, wanting to make out with a werewolf is gay. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Yeah. Yes. No notes. <laughs> But I, I, I do think just to riff on something Ro was saying just now, it, it is interesting to me, the actual, this tension between, on the one hand, D&D &D is like, I don't care about your gender. Um, and then on the other hand, all of the, I was thinking about Thirsty Sword lesbians, which is like, yes, you have this wide array of things, but because everything's an archetype, it's like, if you are, if you are the chosen, you cannot start with plus two daring. Like you just may not, <laughs> no matter what you you do mechanically. So that is an interesting uh, attention, I think, to to revolve in my mind. Turning to our turning to our third sort of category, how can we sort of incorporate queerness into form in the way that Roe was sort of gesturing towards? Like, how can mechanics embody the way that you know sexuality and gender interact with the world, and sort of that way of seeing in the world, seeing the world, being in the world. Like, how can we actually see those things manifest and affect the structure as opposed to the content? Um, but I think a good example of this is in the way that Charles Ludlum talks about his theater of the ridiculous um, 
He was a, a queer artist who founded the Ridiculous Theatrical Company in 1967. He's best known for his play, The Mystery of Irma Vep. Um, he wrote a lot of like cross-dressing in plays, all of these requirements that sort of enforced in his writing, like gender fuckery, basically. And he writes a lot about like, you have to be a, a quote, a living mockery of your own ideals. Um, like he was all about not taking things seriously, ridiculousness as a queer aesthetic, that whole sort of thing. And he writes a lot in his, um, uh, like I have a book of essays and he writes a lot in that book of essays about basically like people expect my content, the content of my plays to have like queer people in it or to be queer because that's what they expect of me. And they expect my plays to be politically useful. But he says even explicitly, quote, my theater is terrible for dignifying anybody's image, which I think is a badass thing to say. Like, <laughs> like, you know, he's very much questioning the assumption that like because he's a queer person making art, his queer art should be able to be used politically to further gay assimilation and actually he's like no fuck that i'm not interested in that and like i'm interested in frivolity and i'm not interested in seriousness um like i'm not interested in respectability which i think is like a turn that you could articulate as sort of a moving away from queer content or queer for straight audiences or diet queerness and towards like i'm making art that is inherently queer because i say it is I would also, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's something like really troubling about the trap of dignity. Um, because when uh, my partner wrote a book with a co-writer, my partner's name is Stephen M. Engel. His oh. co-writer is Timothy S. Lyle. Um, and in Disrupting Dignity, they talk about how like, when the thing that you're pushing towards is dignity, like one dignity can be weaponized against you in a bunch of different ways um, by like saying that you're acting in an undignified manner and therefore you don't deserve X or Y or Z. But later, like when dignity is the threshold, whose dignity is more important, yours or the state's, yours or a church's, yours or a doctor's? Is it undignified for like a doctor to perform an abortion who has like feelings about abortion? Um, and like when we're holding that as like the standard, there's a bunch of problems when like dignity comes up against other dignities. Um, and so Ludlum being like, I'm not trying to do this. This is not part of my theatrical project is very good, is great. Because um, otherwise we end up with like Love Simons and not like Pose. Other camp theater. Um, Paula Vogel wrote this play called The Mineola Twins because she was told as a lesbian that lesbians couldn't write camp. And she said, fuck that. Um, so she wrote this play called The Mineola Twins, which is fantastic and weird. It's about two sisters played by the same actor, their respective boyfriend and girlfriend, both played by a second actor, their kids, played by a third actor, and a lot of bad wigs. Um, it follows Myra and her sister Myrna, who live through the Eisenhower, Nixon, and Bush administrations, and we see how they go from the good and bad girls of town to abortion activists and right-wing radio hosts, and like the ways our children rebel against us despite our best intentions. Like the progressive one has this very conservative child. Um, the conservative one has this very rebellious progressive child. Both of them like run away to live with the other aunt at one point. It's very funny um, and just very weird. Um, that plays equal parts biting satire and snarky repartee as we track uh, the women's movement and find that like 
one of the things that I think is really cool about it and one of the things that's fun is that Paula Vogel finds the woman who should be like most clearly in your corner, your sister in this play ends up possibly being your like deadliest threat for both of these women. Like their sisters become existential threats for the other in ways that are very fascinating. And it's like, how do we build each other up and how do we tear each other down? Um, but a great play, everyone, if it's ever playing near you, go see it. It's very fun. It's very harrowing when you're like, how far have we come in the last 50 years? Um, we did a reading of it before uh, Paula Vogel was doing a masterclass at Portland Stage, which was very cool. And we did some readings of some of her plays to like get people knowing who she was and like what her work was in advance so they could feel that they could like speak to her about things. And when we did the Mineola twins, people were like, when was this written? Is this from like 2015? And we were like, no. <laughs> We just keep doing the same thing over and over again in politics. <laughs> it's bad. Anyway. Um, another manifestation of like queerness in structure um, that we can find through like the concept of queer time, which is like ubiquitous across queer theory. A lot of people write about it in a lot of different ways. But one way that we can sort of see it in action is in um, some contemporary queer musicals, specifically Fun Home and A Strange Loop. Both of them are sort of using... Like they're exploding moments that in real time would be like 30 seconds and we're sort of digging into these moments at, at, at length um, or you're seeing things out of linear order. Like it's sort of this disruption of linear time that is that is very, very queer um, in part because like another way that this manifests in the theater is in thinking about character development and sort of our like journey through life because there's sort of an argument within queer, queer theory that like because of the way that society is, queer people don't develop in the same linear fashion that straight people do. Like our milestones are different or we hit them at different times. Or like, for example, if you're a trans person, like you do puberty twice, probably. Um, like there's just all of these sort of different ways that we grow up that are not sort of adhering to this normative timeline. And like that is framed in like, straight society as like a failure but in fact like jack halberstam famously argues that failure is queer because like success defined by straight people is actually not what we're interested in so i think you can look at um musicals like fun home which are very which is very much about like a person who is failing to develop in the way that people expect her to and we can see how that is like manifested in the structure of the musical which tells things out of order and turns one protagonist into somebody who is played by three people um, so we see this sort of exploding and fracturing that is very queer in its structure. I also want to throw out there Ms. Black for President, which is an incredible play mm -hmm. um, that was done at Steppenwolf a couple years back and I hope will go more places, um, but was about the first trans woman who ran for president. Uh, she didn't win, sadly. Um, but it's like a cool, weird play that also is told through like ball culture mm -hmm. um, and like the the dragon ball scene. And so they're not the dragon ball the drag <laughs> and ball scene Goku for um, president. that's told it. It has like a lot of music inflections, um, but is not a musical. Um, we kind of like hop in and out of like drag performance numbers and then back into straight plays and like 
organizing and running and breaking into the DCCC convention in New York and then going on a march for Marsha P. Johnson. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens in it, which is very fun. And that's Terrell Alvin McCraney, right? Yes. And um, Tina Landau. Tina Landau. She co-wrote with Terrell. Bless her. I love her so much. It's great. It's it's a really good show. Everyone should see it. Everyone should do it. Anyway. One of the things I think is so exciting about the the idea of queer time is that it's something that I've read uh, queer theorists also talk about is the idea of kind of constant becoming rather than uh, the sort of settling that straight society and like normative authoritarian society in general wants you to do where it's like, ah, yes, I will land in this box of my identity and then I will never move from it, which means I'm a knowable quantity that can be policed and sold to and so on and so forth. Um, and I, I'm thinking about an essay that I think Percy brought to the group called uh, uh, called Plot and Queer Structure by Sarah Cipher. And one of the things she talks about in there, she's talking she's talking about writing um, in particular, but I'm really interested in this idea she has of how you give characters agency and that being tied to the process of becoming itself, as she phrases it. Um, and that's something that's really exciting to me because this flu this notion of fluidity or flexibility is something that you don't get in a lot of tabletop role playing games, I think partly because. You know, the nature of a game is that you need mechan- you need something to hang mechanics on. <laughs> so you, you know, are always seeking something to kind of build that on. But it made me think of Dream Askew by Avery Alder and the whole kind of belonging outside belonging family of games, which f- feel to me, a straight cis dude, uh, very, very queer in their form and structure, because these games radically reject a lot of the sort of traditional structures of tabletop games. There are usually no GMs. There is often no conflict or little conflict that's like built in to the game. Um, And Dream Askew particularly, you know, you don't have a GM. You kind of all collect, everybody takes a character, but you all collaborate on the world building, the decision making. And Avery Alder introduces this really interesting concept to me called idle dreaming, which is basically erasing the boundaries or smudging the boundaries between the in-game and out-of-game parts of play, where it's like the idle dreaming is the part where you all just sit around and you kind of shoot the shit and let and are like, oh, maybe the setting that we're in, Dream Askew, uh, is specifically a queer enclave in a post-apocalyptic future. But past that, you decide all the kind of details. Um, So, you know, in the idle dreaming phase, you're just chatting about what that is, what that might be. And that is playing the game. And at some point you might kind of say like, oh, I actually want to see this event that we're talking about. Can we like dive in and role play a scene? And there's mechanics for that. But then you might like fade out again to that kind of more removed idle dreaming uh, mode. And I find that really fascinating and generative and just a wonderful, exciting, liberatory way of approaching play. Um, and I will say also, just because I love Avery Alder, um, her work also, a lot of her other work is even more interested in blurring those boundaries. Um, 
you can read her work, Variations on Your Body, which are a bunch of games that you play like in the corners of your life continually. It, it's a weird, delightful sort of thing where it's like once you've read the game Brave Sparrow, you're sort of always playing Brave Sparrow, whether you want to be or not, um, which I love and think is beautiful. And they're also all very like queer in their theme and content as well as in their form. A point that I think is helpful or to note about the queer representation in the way of like the previous section that happens in games like Dream Askew and like I'm going to use Sleep Away by Jay Dragon as another example is that whereas in Apocalypse World, your gender is like man, woman, ambiguous, transgressing, concealed in Dream Askew and Sleep Away, your gender options are like a rusty sword, a raven's caw, a dagger daddy. Like it's these concepts that are not legible to people who are not like versed in gender and sexuality exploration. Like it's these notions that are like not binary genders or the like third gender that non-binary in some circles has sort of become like it's explicitly a rejection of the entire framework of gender and sexuality that is recognized by like cisnormative and heteronormative society. And instead it's like, you know, I have this weird abstract gender and that's your character's gender, which I think is queer in structure and content, um, which I think is cool. I, I, and I think that's also an incredibly lived experience as well. Like, I remember when I was personally first kind of like exploring my own gender, there was a period of time where the only way that I defined myself, I was like, my gender is soup with a bow on it. And like, that felt a hundred percent true to me. And it was also like a joke that my ex-partner and I had that was like, based on us watching a lot of Top Chef. And it was it was the only way that I could properly explain the kind of like experience that I was having with analyzing my own gender. But in a in a similar way that you were talking about, Percy, that if you do not have an experience of questioning, it is easy to fall into certain boxes that are pre-prescribed because the experience of questioning is in and of itself the experience of blurring those lines. Yeah. Like I, I would even make the argument that if like, couldn't, could not, could never be me, but if I were a straight person playing dream askew, you are required by the game to do something that is outside of the things that may seem possible to you, which is an extreme, which is like queering, and doing the work of like ex exposing people who may not have thought about things in this way before to this new frame of being, which I think is probably like in many ways, the point of queer games is to like, <laughs> is to embody a lived experience that is specific to a community um, and sort of open up other ways of seeing and other ways of being um, because there is no option in Dream Askew to be a woman or a man. Um, although I suppose you could, you could if you really wanted to. <laughs> well, and I think, for many for many people who don't think about gender so i think like specifically for cis people but also for like cis straight people there is this i was told i was this when i was younger but like if i had to describe what it means to be a man or masculine or a woman or feminine or any of those things like many of them would fumble very hard because it's not a thing that we put language to often 
Mm-hmm. Um, like so much of like heteropatriarchy has this vibe of just like either this or this, but like you don't need to know anything past that. Like I am a man or I am a woman. And like, that's all you need to know and all I need to know about it. Um, and as like a queer man, I don't feel like I've interrogated like what masculinity means for me. It's my favorite game to play at parties is to ask just people like, <laughs> how do you what know? What does your gender mean? Well, and, like, how do you, how do you yeah. know? And you can't say mm-hmm. anything about your genitals. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. And I think that that's hard for a lot of people to conceptualize. And I think even like, while I think a lot of this is trans panic, I think the conversations that we're having about like politicians not being able to define what a woman is, um, is also very revealing. Um, not just about like gender expansive ideas or whatever that like some people are maybe like opting into that don't necessarily believe those things, but don't want to be called a bigot. Um, but I think that there's a lot of things that like, yeah, people don't have language for this in like common parlance. And so like, yeah, if all we're going to use is bioessentialism, like you're not going to have a great idea of what a man or a woman is. And, and in and of like going into that, when your experience of your gender or your sexuality is inherently fraught with questions what that does is that it explodes the structure that's been given to you. And that I think is in huge part why so many well-known and effective queer plays are also experimenting with the structure of the, like the given structure of plays and what we all consider the well-made play. Like I know that for me personally, one of the first things that I really wanted to go to negotiate as a writer was what is the well-made play? Why does it matter? And how can I break it? Because in a similar way, I was having my own personal experience with that when it came to having a mutable and questioning experience of gender. And so it reflects mechanically and structurally. Yeah. So I think to sort of wrap all of these threads together, we may we must ask the big question, which is how does Thirsty Sword Lesbians fit into all of these things? How are its mechanics queer? How does it enable queer play? I open this to the group. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, unlike many of the other games that we've talked about today already, except for, um, you know, belonging outside belonging games, Dream is Q, instead of having the option to be queer, Um, Being queer and specifically a lesbian is an expectation in this game. Um, And you're asked, like, what kind of lesbian are you? Which is fun, but, like, the assumption is you are a lesbian. Um, And you can deviate from that, as we talked about in the explainer episode. Like, you could play non-lesbians or you could try to play straight people, but that would be weird um, in this game in particular. Uh, But it is the norm instead of an aberration from the norm. Um, that said, I do have some like questions and I don't have answers, but I have questions about like queerness and unqueerness with regards to this game. Like the game is homonormative. Um, 
And if queerness we read as like a push back against society and a push against the bounds of like what a society allows, what does queerness look like in a homonormative polyamorous society, which is like what thirsty sword lesbians is? Um, well, are you straight then? What I would say actually is that I, I wonder if what that's doing is, and I'm having this thought right now, so it's not, it's half-baked. Um, what if what it's actually doing is thinking about, okay, what if let's actually think about queerness as a relation to a norm and remove sexuality from it entirely? Like it's a given that sexuality, you're a lesbian, done, great, whatever that means to you, take that as you will. But it's thinking about, because I'm thinking about like the spooky witch playbook for obvious reasons, um, which is very much like that playbook is queer because you are considered weird by the rest of society because you have these probably neuroatypical um, interests or you have these things about you that make you weird or like um, in the seeker playbook, like you are queer because you come from a society with radically different norms and expectations. Like, I wonder if what it's actually doing is thinking about let's actually lean into what queerness means divorced from sexuality because sexuality is not a factor here because we already know. Well, and there, there is the whole thing about the, the toxic powers in the world, which I think is in some ways in the book underplayed or, or like a little bit underwritten because I think Walsh and company want you want the players to explore and like to find that for themselves but i also think it in a weird way it actually goes back to the whole like found family thing of like i think the expectation is definitely that the pcs are this like entirely queer probably polyamorous collective but it's not totally clear that the whole world they're in is necessarily that way and there's at least i think walsh is very clear that there's at least one part of the world that is not because that's the toxic power, whatever that means. I think it's really interesting uh, when it comes to the dynamic of the game, kind of going off of what Todd was saying about like there, there can exist a toxic power, but the society that you are embedded in is inherently polyamorous and homonormative. What that kind of triggers in my brain is uh, I think we mentioned this a little bit earlier in the episode about this idea of like no kink at cry. And if we kind of like, I'm kind of pulling on different threads that have been happening throughout the conversation, but like how much is it queer responsibility to stay transgressive? And how much is it queer responsibility to engage with dynamics of dignity and respectability and assimilation versus engaging with transgression and almost rejecting uh, integration. And what I find interesting kind of using this no kink at pride as an, a logic, we can look at it from two extremes where is kink essential at pride because it is a really easy, like defining quality of queer transgression in like a political and sexual framework versus no kink at pride because we need to make it this family friendly first time queer like 
let's give them baby steps kind of dynamic. Something that that makes me think of too is like, um, there's a tendency, there was a tendency when queer theory first like emerged for like a lot of white queer theorists to be like sexuality is the most important thing. And like queerness is this transgressive, cool thing. But then a lot of like queer of color theorists and writers were like, um, you can't define it only this way because there are so many people of color who are also queer in the way that they are treated by society by virtue of being people of color. So it's actually like, we need to think about this intersectionally. We need to think about this more holistically because in fact, queer is like, queer is a position. It's not an identity and it's not, yeah, there, there should not be, as you said, this like pressure to continue to be transgressive because in fact, existence is transgressive. Like existence is in and of itself a transgression for many people. But I do think it's interesting in Thirsty Sword Lesbians that like this is a world where like existence in and of itself is not a transgression because we're in like the fiction of a game. And like you get to decide what is and isn't a norm and expectation. Uh, the the thing that I was kind of going off of is, is that if you go into the extreme, going right off of what Percy was saying, if you go into the extreme, um, the need for transgression to be an integral part of the experience is then you have people who are cis and straight and kinky identifying as queer. And that is a complicated, nuanced conversation in and of itself, because then it going back to what I was saying earlier about the mechanics of games, using queerness as an inside out experience, it eliminates the reality that so much of the experience of queerness is living within structures that oppress you because of these identities. And so when you look at Thirsty Sword Lesbians, where you remove that layer, the transgression is not the fact that you are a Thirsty Sword Lesbian. It is not your polyamory, and it is not your lesbianism. It is instead other toxic powers that are addressing how you manifest these qualities. These qualities are normative, but the manifestation of these qualities or what comes into question is an interesting dynamic that does not raise any moral or ethical judgments on your queerness, but instead raises questions about uh, the interpretation of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I strongly agree. And as we're, as we're like parsing this out more, um, I fully agree that like the queerness is not the sexuality, but like the beast is queer because they like are an aberration from society. The spooky witch, Percy, as you were saying, um, like deals with the unseen in a way that like people don't like and don't like associating with the um, not the dishonorable. What's the what's the, the one infamous? that was like? The infamous. Yeah, the infamous has, like, done things that might be unforgivable um, and, like, is viewed by society in a certain way because of that. Um, and I don't think all of the playbooks necessarily do that, but a number of them are negotiating queerness in a different way. Well, they understand. Uh, the thing that I really liked about all of the playbooks is that they understand that uh, interaction with queerness is the source of uh, turmoil, not the experience of queerness. It, mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. it is how does queerness manifest and interact with the dynamics of the world? And so 
It is given that you are queer. It is not given how your queerness manifests and interacts with the systems that exist in this world. I did want to ask how we see because we've I feel like we've been talking mostly about uh, the playbooks and Thirsty Sword Lesbians sort of uh, setting or like pseudo setting. And I wanted to zoom in a little bit and think about the mechanics of the game a little bit. I was talking earlier about the like the idea of a constant state of becoming and it reading that essay and thinking about Thirsty Sword Lesbians started me thinking about the playbook advance as like you can switch to a new playbook and you get to keep like one thing from your old playbook and throw everything else out except your relationships and just start you know you were a beast before and now you're a chosen or whatever um and also which i was kind of like oh that is an interesting like it's fascinating to me that i never realized before because i think this is an option in apocalypse world Mm -hmm. too I think. Yeah, it Don't is. Don't quote me on that. Um, but I never realized before that you could, in theory, just do that ad infinitum. Yeah. If yeah you you want. can just keep cycling through playbooks. Well, and I yeah. I like that. What I like about that is that it feels in the vein of Cypher's essay and like this idea of queer time, um, like the playbooks are not pushing you narratively to a specific conclusion. Um, you could continue to play out that emotional conflict over and over and over, or you could switch to a new playbook as you sort of discover a new one. But I like that, like, there is no implication of like a linear, like you have to reach this point or like, this is how you should resolve this emotional conflict. It's instead very open to like, um, whatever it is that makes sense to you. Um, which I think is a related thing that I like about it. It's an interesting conflict or not conflict contrast with masks which is actually kind of built around like here's your central conflict and eventually you will make it It, it's not like you have to make this choice about it but masks pushes you toward that i don't remember what they call it your moment of destiny moment of truth something like that i think it's the moment of truth when you become a paragon yeah right yes and it's like this is kind of you leveling up is you like dealing with the thing but I mean, there's like that, there's the veteran playbook or uh, veteran archetype in Wander Home where you sort of constantly have the option to do the um, like I kill someone and then retire this character immediately move like there is a built in sort of narrative conclusion to that character's journey. But you always have the option like you are living with the option to do it or not do it. And you get to opt into when that happens, which I think is also feels very queer to me in a way I can't articulate. Maybe it's the yearning and the tension. Yeah, I think what I I like so much about uh, the system, uh, besides the fact that I will tear down the system, sorry, um, is that it very much understands that archetypes are cyclical um, in the sense that the the transition between archetypes is the story. Um, and when you look at a system like, for example, D&D, um, your job is your archetype, your like your interaction with your, with the world, the way that you like get rid of a dragon is your archetype. And you're still playing like different shades of that archetype, but that archetype is a central element of how you process and engage with the world. And 
when we look at a system like Thirsty Sword Lesbians and it tells you, you are constantly shifting through these emotional experiences and these emotional experiences are archetypal. It's interesting to engage with storytelling on that kind of emotional level instead of on a structural level. Like it's not so much about leveling up your job to the best of its abilities. It's about honoring the emotional journey that the storytelling is naturally taking you down and finding mechanics within these playbooks that best reflect how that journey is moving and shaping. Absolutely. Um, looking at Thirsty Sword Lesbians from like a different point of view, one of the things that I do think is queer is the queer time of it. Um, and I'm going to nod again to my partner's book, Disrupting Dignity. Um, he and his How very dare. How very dare. Um, he and his co-writer, Timothy, um, talk about uh, queer futurity um, and queer time. And specifically, um, they discuss this idea kind of in the context of bathhouse culture um, and about how queer people, particularly like pre- Obergefell um, queer men um, interacted with each other like romantically and sexually in ways that are far different from the standard time scale for straight people. Um, for instance, particularly in a bathhouse, um, you might make out with someone, see them naked and hook up before you even know their name. Whereas like in traditional straight relationships, whether that's in fiction or, you know, real life, um, you usually learn about a person and then like develop a crush on them and then maybe go on some dates, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a miscommunication somewhere in the third act and everybody's <laughs> sad about it for a while. And then they make out and they get married. Cool. Great. Fine. Um, and in thirsty sword lesbians, like, you can easily fall for, spar with, and even smooch someone the first time that you meet them. And you are incentivized to do that. You are supposed to play fast and loose with your emotions. And while the game doesn't uh, specifically encourage, like, overtly sexual context or themes, um, like, you are supposed to be, uh, you know, falling in love at the drop of a hat and thinking about all these different people and swooning for people uh, and all of those things constantly. Uh, and I think that there is a queerness in that that develops at a lot of tables of all sorts of different tabletop role-playing games, but is not like mechanically involved in those things. I know um, in Romana uh, and Ben and I and Corey um, we're playing a game of Still Fleet, and like every time we were introduced to a new character, we rolled a D100 to see if they were hot or not to our <laughs> character. Uh, but that is like a mechanic we built because we, as very thirsty people, were interested in like, well, are they hot? Does my character think they're hot? And Ben would be like, it's a grasshopper, man. And we're like, that doesn't tell me anything. Incredible. <laughs> like, I need to mechanically know if my character is attracted to this person. Well, like, even even in, like, a mechanics conversation about that, like, I uh, I took essentially what was, like, the managerial role in the playbook. And then as I was reading the playbook's going on um because still fleet is still being built as like an entire 
game as a whole, we had access to a lot of different uh, playbooks as well. And one of the playbooks that is specifically designed for PCs primarily was the Cortisone playbook. And I immediately, when we were leveling up, turned to Ben and was just like, I want to take a level from the Cortisone playbook. And he was just like, sure, why not? And so all of a sudden, having romantic interactions with PCs became an integral part of how I worked mechanically as a like as a player in our game. And so uh sorry, I kept on saying PCs, but I meant NPCs. Um so it's interesting how even like within the mechanics of Thirsty Sword Lesbians, the way that you flirt your relationships, the dynamics are integral in those mechanics and it shifts the way that you engage with your other players because you're thinking about it with the context of like, I love you, I hate you, I've fallen in love with you, I know a secret about you and like mechanically it reflects that. And what I really like about that also is um, something that we've kind of been talking about overall, this idea of like found family is there is an inherent queerness to intimacy as an overarching system within these games Um, and having access to intimacy being built into the mechanics of the game feels inherently queer as well. Especially because I think circling back to no kink at pride and circling back to um, like queerness for straight people. Like I think there is this, the the vision of queerness that is palatable to straight people is this very sexless queerness that where you don't have to think about what queer intimacy actually entails. And I think this game is doing something that is actually really great in terms of saying, no, this is a game about queer romance and queer intimacy, and that can manifest however you want it to and however you as a player are comfortable with. But also like this is a game that is about queer love and it is a game about queer sex. Even if you don't see that sex happen, like we can assume, and there is all of this intimacy that is so queer and so joyful. So I think like for me, that is a big way that this, that this game is queer is that a it's, it's not attempting to convince straight people that gay people are fine and cool. It's not attempting to circling back to disrupting dignity. It's not attempting to like dignify queer existence. It's just saying like, this is what queer intimacy is like. And we can, you know, we can have swashbuckling adventures too. Um, Well, it also directly attacks the very well-known stereotypes of lesbians that they are, there is that lesbian bed death. They are essentially two really good friends who live together and build armoires. Like, have you ever met a fucking lesbian? (laughs) Like it's that like it's just it's incredibly it's incredibly uh it isn't it is it is a sexless stereotype. It is this logic that it is completely built on companionship, but not at all built on active romance. It is it is it is the passive romance of companionship and not the active romance of flirting. Personally, I'd like to change the stereotype to more bathhouses at Pride, more all gender bathhouses at Pride. And also, Bette Midler has to perform at those bathhouses. She used to perform mm. at bathhouses. I think she that's... did. That also comes up in the book. 
I think that's a great note for us to end on. Um, thank you all for listening to Dungeons and Drama Nerds and come back next week for more Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds.